It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Sunday, August 21st, 2022. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. Some polling shows many Democrats want other options for president in 2024. And while we haven't even gotten through this year's midterms yet, some names are getting more attention than others. I'm Jared Halpern. The CDC is planning a reset more than two years into its pandemic response. The CDC needs to rehabilitate their image. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. The CHIPS Act, the Senate Climate and Healthcare Bill, burn pit legislation, a gun bill. After all of it, the president's poll numbers are starting to lift a bit as his administration has seen some legislative wins this summer. But a poll in July, as much of this legislation was moving through Congress, showed 75% of Democrats wanted the party to nominate someone other than President Biden in 2024. White House spokeswoman Karine Jean-Pierre has been asked many times, is the president running again? This was her response just last week. He intends to run. We're not even focused on 2024. We're focusing on the okay. moment right now, 2022. This is a president who passed the American Rescue Plan with congr- all, all Democrats, who passed a bipartisan infrastructure legislation, which people said it would not happen. Still, the analysts and politicos are writing the lists. There's little polling, but some alternative names are obvious. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, of course, Vice President Kamala Harris. And then there are people like like California Governor Gavin Newsom. This summer, he decided to air an ad in Florida disparaging their leadership, as the state is run by GOP heavyweight Ron DeSantis. Freedom, it's under attack in your state. Your Republican leaders, they're banning books, making it harder to vote, restricting speech in classrooms, even criminalizing women and doctors. I urge all of you living in Florida to join the fight. But for some, this conversation, as Corrine Jean-Pierre has said, may just be a bit too early. We have this tendency in American politics to... Richard Fowler is a Fox News contributor and contributing writer at Forbes magazine. I call it skipping chapters, right? We go from <laughs> 2000 to 2004 to 20 to 2008, and we skip all the years in between, like there's not an election happening in 80 days from now. Right. We're uh, close to 80 days. So, I, I mean, I think that the, uh, there's so many unknowns, uh, and so it's hard to say... What are some of the names that will be what what are, what names will be sort of register in two years from now? Um, and so I think there's a lot of wait and sees. Um, and I mean, think about it this way. I mean, if history teaches us anything, this time in 2000, this time in 2006, there weren't a lot of folks saying Barack Obama is going to be the president of the United right. States. <laughs> right. So there's just a lot of there's a lot of unknowns in this moment. Um, but what I will say is this. I think that. When you look at some of these governors in states like Michigan, um, in states like Wisconsin, um, and you look at some of some folks in the United States Senate and places like when places from Georgia and other places, I think that there's a lot of potential to see candidates emerge that will speak to the needs of the American people. 
are we, Richard, are we seeing any solid polling yet? I, I think I saw one, um, a, a News Nation decision desk poll um, that had Kamala Harris, vice president. I mean, that's an obvious name, right? Um, as, as maybe uh, being somebody many Democrats might prefer. I, I think that was followed by um, California Governor Gavin Newsom. Do we have any solid polling right now, or is it more just talk, rankings, people writing, you know, sort of quirky articles about the possibility? Look, I think there's a lot of quirky articles, and I think any anybody who's polling the presidential election in 2004, excuse me, in 2024, uh, I think you're, you're not going to get an accurate answer. I mean, because even if you think about it, what would have happened if you were to poll the election of 2018, uh, after this, right before the 2018 midterms, you might say that Donald Trump would have won, and then COVID happened, right? So there's so many unknowns. So I think it's really important for our audience to understand while we're while people while those of us who do are in the industry and everybody who works in Washington and, and some works folks some folks working work in New York are trying to skip chapters. I think we're at a fascinating and interesting point in American history, and it's really important for us to read it page by page and word by word because there's so many unknowns um, that go into what will make. Uh, a presidential candidate, what will make uh, uh, a, a Democratic nominee or Republican nominee, and what will happen from when they're nominated to they decide to put their, their hand on the Bible on January, 20, January 20th, 2024. So let's talk then about what we do know, right? Instead of prognosticating, we do see in real time Governor Gavin Newsom of California trying to get into it with Ron DeSantis, for example. Um, you know, they're they're going after each other sort of publicly. Newsom had an ad accusing DeSantis of infringing on freedoms, bullying the Special Olympics. DeSantis hit back saying people are leaving California in droves because of state policy. You look at sort of an, a national governor on governor fight like that. Do you draw anything from it? Do you say this is a governor in California trying to raise his national profile? Or do you just say this is a some sort of uh, uh, political moment that, that Newsom, for some reason, is is deciding to, you know, uh, pick with a, with a Republican governor for some other reason. What do you make of moments like that? that we see? <laughs> I think, look, I think both Gavin Newsom and Ron DeSantis are trying to raise our national profile and they're trying to figure out what another chapter looks like, looks for them. But I actually think both Ron DeSantis as well as Gavin Newsom are in the same political boat. In, in the case of, of Ron DeSantis, Will he be brave enough to take on Donald Trump, understanding that in 2016, all of the candidates who are supposed to be promising, you know, Republican candidates took on Donald Trump and Donald Trump was literally a political hacksaw to many of their careers? Uh, I mean, think about it. When was the last time you heard about George Bush, right? When, nice. Jeb Bush, rather. When was, I mean, even in the folks who are still in our America's politics today, like a Marco Rubio, Marco Rubio went from being the star of the Republican Party to being a backbencher in the United States Senate. And even on the Democratic side, the same can also be true. Anybody who's jockeying to be the nominee, one, there's a sitting Democratic president, and two, nobody predicted that Joe Biden would have the primary success he had mm -hmm. with Democratic voters after the South Carolina primary. Most, th most folks thought uh, in 2020, that Joe Biden was sort of dead in the water after yeah. losing in both New Hampshire and in Iowa. And then he comes back in South Carolina and literally takes almost every state after that. 
So there's just so many unknowns. And if American history teaches us anything, it should teach us to read this, these moments as we're in this very peculiar, very interesting part of American history, page by page and word by word, and not skip to the back of the book to see what happens. Yeah, I think almost like these conversations are us or, or me trying to capitalize right on the, <laughs> the excitement of, of that, of those moments, right? When Joe Biden did sort of overtake Pete Buttigieg and um, Bernie Sanders, and um, it was, you know, a big moment. Um, but, but Richard, the reality is, and I understand the sensitivity, right? You have a sitting president, he is a Democrat, and it is unusual, at least in modern times, to see a, a primary fight uh, among, uh, you know, the, the, the party in power. Um, but you do have some polling indicating people uh, do want to see somebody else run. And some of those numbers are overwhelming. I think that CNN poll had like 75% of oh, Democrats yeah, saying they'd like to, you know, I, I think it's a conversation, though, I, even if it's early, even if it's a little ridiculous, um, it still is maybe worth talking about because there are some people who are big names and some people who are trying to raise their national profile. And so maybe it's too early to do the horse race, but maybe th maybe it is of note to talk about some of these people. Oh, uh, listen, I, I think it's, I think that's right. I think we should be having a conversation about who are some of these newcomers that could potentially be the new leaders of the Democratic Party, for sure. There's no question about that. And I think you're also in a world in which both uh, President Joe Biden, as well as former President Donald Trump, if politics are cyclical, these two individuals are sort of at the end of the cycle in that with age, right. with where the country's going, with demographic changes, they both of them represent what is an old guard um, in, in both their party's politics, because both their party is changing and maneuvering and new people are joining and other folks are leaving. Uh, and so it's going to be an interesting time. I would I would argue folks I would argue for folks to pay attention to what's happening in some of these battleground states and who's occupying those governor's mansions, mm. whether it be Ron DeSantis in Florida, whether it be somebody like a Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan, um and, and whether it be JB Pitzker in Illinois. Um, we'll have to see what happens in the Pennsylvania governor's race, which is now currently on the ballot. Um, and what happens if Shapiro wins? What type of impact will he have? So I think I'll be paying attention to some governor's mansions. Um, and I'll also be paying attention to the unknown. Because if you really think about even in the Republican primary to give, you know, Donald Trump a point or two here, nobody expected the businessman from New York to right. overtake all of the can all of these candidates that had wealths of experience, right? Wealths of experience as governors wealth of experience as legislators, wealth of experience, you know, in the presidential cycles, because many had run before. Um, and he took that, he took them all out. He was a, literally a political hacksaw to many, uh, what, what one would argue was a very packed and talented Republican bench. It's mm, a great point. Um, talk to me about your sense of President Biden himself. You know, we hear from the White House. He's running again. He's running again. Why? Why do we keep having this conversation? But we we are having the conversation. It is. Do, do you run the risk of being a sitting president if you say no? I'm not running again. Even with the age question. Even with uh, whatever else you want to throw in there. Do you run the risk of making yourself a lame duck if you say no? I'm not running in in two and a half years. I mean, is it sort of like? whatever the outcome is what maybe the president already has his mindset but if you say 
no, I'm not running again, or I'm waiting for to see if Trump is going to run, and then I'll decide. You, you, you run the risk of, um, I guess, not jeopardizing your, your current position, but throwing some uncertainty, uh, making the, the current situation more precarious for yourself if you're the sitting president of the United States. So I would say in normal times and in the cases of uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson and other folks who decided not to seek a second term, not to seek a second term from their party. Yes, you run the risk of being a lame duck. Here's the difference. Joe Biden is almost an anomaly. And I say it and I say he's an anomaly in this way. Joe Biden, one could argue, in the first two years of his presidential term has been more legislatively successful than any other president in the first two years of their legislative terms in modern history. With that being said, Joe Biden, based on approval rating, is also one of the most unpopular presidents in modern times in American history. If Barack Obama had this had this these amount of legislative victories in their first two years, Barack Obama might not have had the shellacking that he had in the 2012 in the 2010 midterm elections. So I say all that to say that I think there is a world in which Joe Biden can announce to the American people that I'll not be seeking a second term. And that could actually make him more powerful of a president in speech, in the bully pulpit hmm. and legislatively, because he's able to go out there and sort of say not necessarily be guarded by what we've seen from the past from him or in this past two years very guarded by what his staff wants him to say the politics of it all and really just sort of be honest about a position and, and i think i'll give you a great a, a couple of great sort of if you can look if there was any tea leaves of this many times when joe biden makes pot potential gaffes right or we would argue that they're gaffes He's actually more aligned with where the American electorate is than any other president we've seen in recent times. And his staff walks that back. Let's take China, for example. When he went to when he went to Asia, he very clearly sort of said the one China pro the one China policy that we've we've held for decades is problematic. And if China decides to strike Taiwan in any particular way, America will strike back. He's been the he was one of, he's one of the few presidents that's ever said that publicly. And most Americans were sort of nodding their head in agreement. Same goes for in the war between Russia and Ukraine. He said Putin needs to be taken out. And he wasn't saying that the American people and the American government or the American military was going to take out Putin. He was sort of making a global observation because most world leaders, right, without the formalities of foreign policy, right, and the formalities of how diplomatic relations would be done behind closed doors would probably tell you, if the lights were dim, that, yeah, we need to take Putin out. Putin is a pariah, <laughs> right? But the fact that he said it out loud and his team walked it back says to me, what would what would happen in a world in which they weren't thinking about re-election and right. Joe Biden was sort of allowed to be the Joe? I mean, they call it gaps. They call him sort of Uncle Joe character that we've seen him play in American politics. This honest, refreshing candidate, which is how he got the Democratic nomination in the first place. If Joe was just allowed to be Joe a little bit more without the constraints of, oh, I've got to run again in two years, maybe that'd be a good thing for the country. Because you would have a president that's willing to speak very honestly and forthright and frank to the American people without poll testing, without polling it, without his staff sort of boxing him in a little bit, if that makes any sense. Yeah, you've convinced me. One term for everyone. <laughs>
I'm not, um, no, I'm not saying that. Um, but I, 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 the point I'm trying to make here is, off in, in in previous times, we would argue that a one-term president who announces they're not running, they're a right. lame duck. They can get nothing done. I'm not sure if those same sort of generalizations would apply or parameters would apply to president biden also this he the reason one of the reasons why he's been so legislative successful is he's had 40 years in the united states senate he knows the building he knows where all the corners are uh and so he's able to navigate that as well and i also think he would also give the democrats an opportunity to run a very fair and above board primary with almost like a referee calling balls and strikes. Finally, Richard, um, general landscape ahead of midterms is tightening. Democrats do seem more energized. Um, and, and yet you have the head of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee saying things like Democrats need to be more likable. He's got a primary himself, as you know, Sean Patrick Maloney in New York. But I want to quote him. He said, if I've had any success in a Trump district, it's because I try to take seriously the priorities of the people I represent, not just tell them about my own. For example, Democrats could be much more intentional about our work in rural areas with veterans, with farmers, with people in communities that haven't benefited from the global economy. We could talk like human beings. How was that received by Democrats? Is it is it condescending? Does he have a point? Is it both? Uh, listen, I think the Democrats do have a problem when it comes to talking about their legislative successes and their victories and, and, and how that impacts everyday Americans. And I, I mean, like I said, Joe Biden is one of the most legislative, whether you like his policies or not. Right. Legislative legislative successes. There hasn't been a president in their first two years that has done more that I can count in modern history. Right. So. But we, where we struggle, where the party struggles, is they struggle talking about what that means. In the past couple of months, they passed a bill that would give necessary aid to former former Afghan and Iraqi vets that were involved in burn pits. And we know the impact that burn pits have, have, have had on their lives, right? It's caused cancer, it's caused death, it's caused various forms of lung disease, etc. You don't hear the party talking about that with veterans, right? And this is a mis sort of, I think, a, a messaging mistake. But look at this map. Anybody, anybody, and I'm going to be very clear, and maybe anybody who is out here predicting who's going to have the majorities in the House or the Senate, even though I do think it's very likely that Republicans will, will take control of the House, they're not watching this race close enough. And I, I, the best example that I give you in the on the house side i'll give you an example for both but on the house side is what's happening in alaska right now in alaska you have a jungle primary where sarah palin the former governor and former president vice presidential nominee in 2008 did not receive the endorsement from the alaska republican party another candidate received that endorsement both of these candidates are running against each other with a democrat on the ticket so it's very likely Republicans will split the vote between Sarah Palin and Begich. And it's very possible that Alaska, the reddest of red states, <laughs> could send a Democrat in a, could send a Democrat to the United States House of Representatives. With that being said, if you look at the Senate map, I mean, we heard the words of Mitch McConnell earlier this week, where he sort of said that it's going to come down to candidate quality. And Mitch McConnell is a man of few words and a lot a man of a lot of <laughs> legislative action. And when he says it's going to come down to quality, I think what he's trying to sort of tea leaf 
to 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 the American people and to people paying attention is we might not necessarily have the quality of candidates to pick up seats in the United States Senate. And you see, if you're looking at the folks who do the predicting and you're looking at the pollsters, they're showing that to you. It's very likely that Dr. Marmaraz in Pennsylvania will lose. It's very likely that um, Dr. Raphael Warnock, the current sitting senator and um, the pastor of Martin Luther King's, Martin Luther King's church um, in Atlanta will win. And the same goes for governor's mansions, right? In the state, and, and the best example there is in Maryland. In Maryland, Larry Hogan, an overwhelmingly popular Republican governor who's term limited, endorsed a candidate in the primary. His candidate lost, the Trump-backed candidate won. The next day, Larry Hogan gets on television and says, I will not be voting for the Republican, and I urge my voters not to do the same. <clears throat> Which says what? It's very likely that he is basically saying, I'm, I would rather a Democrat be the next governor of Maryland than the current GOP nominee. There is a lot of, we are, like I said at the beginning of this conversation, we are in a very dynamic place in American history and in American politics. And those three examples are just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to how these dynamics are changing and what the impact these dynamics will have as Voters are still making up their mind. And as voters are making up their mind, gas prices are getting lower. And for many women in this country, mm -hmm. abortion rights are getting more restrictive. Richard Fowler, the man with all the examples. Thank you for your time. <laughs> You're welcome. Public trust is crucial during a public emergency, say like a public health emergency. It's how Americans test the institutions charged with managing a crisis. The director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, admits that after more than two years of the COVID pandemic response, the agency needs to improve its image and restore trust. She has outlined a reset, a reorganization for the chief public health agency with a staff of more than 12,000 people. Part of the overhaul is trying to speed up data collection and policy recommendations for federal, state, and local health departments. Another goal is to better translate that scientific data. Dr. Jerome Adams welcomes the changes. He served as Surgeon General during the Trump administration and was on the task force first established in early 2020 to deal with the emerging pandemic. We have to understand that the CDC is in an, an impossible position in many ways. Number one, because we want them to be fast. So when something new pops up, we want them to give us an answer right away about what to do and what not to do. But they also are supposed to be the end-all be-all authority. And so there's, they've got to be 100% correct. If they are 1% wrong, somebody says, see, look, you can't trust the CDC. And then you add uh, into that the fact that these are professional scientists, which uh, I can tell you as someone who's been in that world my entire life, are not the best communicators. Uh, when you go to a party, you don't seek out the, uh, the scientists to enthrall you with stories or to, uh, to, to make you laugh uh, or to, to, to connect with you. And so in many cases, they're giving you a scientific explanation uh, with a lot of nuance 
And that doesn't fit into a tweet. It doesn't fit into a headline. It doesn't fit into a soundbite. And it ends up causing confusion for the public. So one of the recommendations that I've long been making is that they need more behavioral scientists, um, not just lab scientists, so that we understand how you talk to people when you want them to actually change their behaviors, whether that's eating healthy foods or getting your vaccinations. But we also need marketing and communications experts. Uh, we can figure out how to get your kid to eat a new brand of Oreo that comes out, but we can't get more than about 10% of America's kids vaccinated. And so we need to use that expertise to answer people's questions and to help get them to a place where they're making healthier choices. One of the things that stood out to me, because I know a lot of this is about speed, right? They want to sort of speed up the response. And, and one of the things that I saw in the recommendations that are coming out about this revamp is, and I didn't understand this, you have a medical degree, so you probably do, increasing the use of preprint scientific reports instead of waiting on sort of the peer review process. Peer review is important in science and in medicine, but it takes a long time, right? Exactly. So explain so to me what preprint means. So a, a typical article that you're going to write in an academic journal um, can take a year or more to get to the point where it's ready to, to, to be published. You want the data to come out. You want to scrub the data and recheck the data. And you've also got to understand that um, in many cases, this data takes a long time to filter its way up to the CDC. So you're already looking at several weeks to months delay just to get it. And then to actually work its way through the peer review process can take um, months to, to well over a year. Preprint means, hey, we've got this information. It hasn't been 100% peer reviewed or scrubbed, but we're gonna get it out to you because you need to make policy decisions right now. You need to know how many monkeypox cases are in your neighborhood right now. You need to know what COVID spread looks like right now or whether this new variant is impacting you right now, not six months from now. And you do that with the caveat that, hey, this information may change somewhat in the future and we're going to update you if it changes, but we're not withholding that information uh, until such time passes that it's no longer relevant. And you've seen that's a real challenge. States and counties and even businesses have been far ahead of the CDC, both in terms of adapting to, to more um, restrictive COVID measures when the time is appropriate um, and to less restrictive COVID measures when the time is appropriate. And that's made them less relevant, quite frankly. So the idea is let's let people know what we know now. And exactly. try and, so as it relates to, do we need to wear masks on airplanes? Do we need to mask at this level of spread or that level of spread? That is that sort of the, the information that should have been communicated quicker, decisions made faster during, uh, I guess the last two and a half years? It absolutely should have been, but, but again, the point is we need to change the process at the CDC and also the way we communicate with the public to let them know, hey, this is what we think is the best advice right now, mm -hmm. um, but it could change. And we need to say that the CDC wants to hold on until they get 110 percent of the information because they're scared to be wrong. And again, I don't blame them for that. Because when they're 1% wrong, people say, see, you can't trust the CDC. Right. But they need to shift the way they communicate with the public and the expectations to say, hey, this information may not be 100% correct, but it's what we know right now. And you as a policymaker or an individual citizen um, need to have this information so you can make an informed choice.
So I, I remember having a conversation with uh, health, uh, you know, government health officials a few months ago, and they talked about one of the challenges when you have a whole of government approach, like with COVID, is everybody in government then gets some input. Is that a problem for the CDC? That's absolutely a problem. Because there's going to so be I, political people in the room, right? So I, I actually broke down what the CDC's challenges are into three buckets. One bucket is internal. And they need to change the culture there. They need mm -hmm. to change the way that they operate. And that's what Dr. Walensky was mainly focused on and what she actually has control over. Another bucket is funding and authority. So there are only so many things the CDC can do by law and only so many things they are funded to do. Um, they need money to actually hire communication specialists and marketing specialists, and Congress has to appropriate that money. And that's a real worry because you're going into an era where People are, are actively hostile against the CDC from a congressional standpoint. So how do you make it better? Uh, I, I liken it to the defund police efforts. Mm -hmm. uh, and I would say, we don't need to defund the police. We need to fund them appropriately to do their jobs. The problem with the CDC is you've got people saying defund the CDC. No, we need to fund them appropriately. So that's bucket number two is Congress. But the third bucket, as you mentioned, is that the CDC is inherently political. And it's not the CDC's fault. The CDC director is a appointee of the president of the United States. And I can tell you as someone who's been in this in this world for over a decade, that it doesn't matter who the CDC director is. You're still uh, every time you, you make a statement thinking about, OK, is this going to tick the boss off? Um, and there are protocols in place that say if you're going to make some big market altering news. And again, this is any administration, whether it was Tom Frieden with Ebola or, uh, or Robert Redfield under Trump, or uh, Walensky under, under Biden, you have to let the White House know, we're putting out this information, it may shock the public, and then the White House gives you feedback over, okay, well, why don't you say it like this? Uh, and that is a problem, because the CDC should be in a position where if the science says something, they can just go out and let the public know, and that it shouldn't be also taken into account how the markets are gonna react, or what the political fallout is going to be of this statement. So that's cultural. That's sort of intrinsic. And is that sort of because I know you had talked about on Twitter and in other interviews that part of the problem with sort of the politicization of the CDC is now, you know, oh, well, this was Trump's fault. This was Biden's fault, you know, depending on, on you know, what side of the aisle somebody falls on is they sort of take in the information from the CDC. Exactly. Um, It really frustrated me because uh, so much of the pandemic for the last uh, several years for a lot, lot of our country was framed through the lens of Trump. And it was, um, this is all Trump's fault. And literally we had an election where it was framed around, okay, if you elect Joe Biden, COVID's gonna go away. And this is not me being anti-Biden or pro-Trump. I mean, it's hard to argue that, that that's how the election was framed. And now you've got a public that's seen 18 plus months of a Biden presidency where COVID is actually not much better in terms of spread, where we still have problems with vaccine hesitancy. And we've got to remember that Vice President Harris actually was one of the first people to come out and say that she wouldn't have trusted a COVID vaccine um, and then tried to, to, to pull that back. But, but we can't forget that. Um, and, and you see, again, a lot you see spread within White House circles that is greater than what it ever was during the Trump administration. Um, you see less restrictive policies for getting on the White House grounds now 
than what you had during the Trump administration. You don't actually have to test to get on the White House grounds now. You had to test all during COVID to get on the White House grounds during the Trump administration. And I say all that because the public sees that. And when they see that, they go, well, none of these recommendations that you all make must be scientifically based. They must be all political. And that is not at all the truth. Uh, I can tell you that from someone who was in, in that situation. I made recommendations based on what I thought the science was telling us at the time and what the data was telling us at the time. But a lot of people heard it as um, this is what Trump wants you to say, or this is what Biden wants you to say. That's a problem. And, and we need to figure out a way to separate out the science and the scientists from the political messaging um, and the uh, in the in in the politics in D.C. So that that's a good transition to kind of the last element of this. I wanted to talk to you about it, and that is trust in our institutions, trust in our public health institutions at a time where, listen, the people have to trust that the information that they're getting is is factual. And right now, to your earlier point, it does feel like this is a partisan divide that, that Democrats are going to follow the CDC and Republicans won't. And I know that's overbroad and that's not true. But I mean, how do you sort of get back to the CDC being viewed as an honest broker? Well, that's a great question. And what I would say is there are celebrities, there are major organizations, Fortune 500 companies who have catastrophes happen all the time. Uh, you know, a celebrity gets caught drunk driving or an organization puts out a product that, that kills somebody and needs to be recalled. And so there are actually whole books written and experts at helping you rehabilitate your image. And the CDC needs to rehabilitate their image. And I think uh, to, to give Dr. Walensky credit, the first step in any rehabilitation process is owning what you did as wrong. And she came out and she said, look, there were mistakes in both administrations. And I was glad to hear her say that because so much of what's happened up until now, even even within recent months, it's framed as, oh my gosh, it was terrible back during the Trump time and it's so great now. I mean, every it frustrates the heck out of me every time you hear Biden talk about COVID. It's in terms of, look at what we did that's great. Um, and it was so terrible back then. Walensky owned that, hey, there were mistakes then, there are mistakes now. And um, we're going we're to fix it. So that's step one is owning that mistake. But then it's, it's really helping define your mission. And that's what I think is going to be important moving forward is telling the public, here's what the CDC's mission actually is. Here's what we are planning on and want to do for you, the American public, so that people understand. The CDC has suffered from mission creep over the years mm-hmm. uh, and that they keep adding on more and more and more things that they're, that they're invested in. And what we really need them to do is get back to basics, collect the data and let us know the data so that we can actually react to it versus a lot of the mission creep that's gone on there. And I think if you do that and you show it over and over again, it's not gonna happen right away, um, but if you, if you do that consistently uh, at the CDC level and at the local level, uh, then, uh, then I think you can build back that trust. So I believe it can happen. I believe they've taken the first step But I also, quite frankly, uh, am a little bit skeptical that you're going to see big changes anytime soon because you've got a midterm election coming up. And as we talked about politics, Mm -hmm. there are literally people running in the midterm election on we need to get rid of the CDC. Uh, And so I think, again, to close, it's important that we understand that the CDC can't get better by itself. It's got to get better with buy-in from Congress and support of Congress. It's got to get better with a White House and political figures 
who try to dial down the political rhetoric. And, uh, and it's got to get better with the public understanding that, hey, we can't be a healthy country if we don't have a healthy CDC. So you can't get rid of the CDC. You're not going to be able to investigate foodborne outbreaks. Mm-hmm. Um, the CDC works on infant and maternal mortality. The CDC works on suicide prevention and the opioid epidemic. Most of what happens at the CDC is not COVID. It's not monkeypox. It's things that keep us healthy throughout the day. And so that's why I will fight for the CDC, even while I fully acknowledge that there are problems there that we need to fix. We'll see uh, how this uh, sort of overhaul this review goes. Uh, I know they're getting a lot of input. Uh, Dr. Adams, I always appreciate your perspective on these matters. Uh, The best to you. Stay safe. uh, Stay healthy, my friend. Thank you, Jared. Same to you. That will do it for this week's Fox News Rundown from Washington. Next week, New York and Florida round out a busy few weeks of midterm primaries, and redistricting means some member-on-member races worth watching. Florida's Republican Governor Ron DeSantis quickly becoming a target of Democrats nationwide. We'll find out his Democratic challenger for November. We'll break down the results. We may also get our first look at the affidavit that was used to justify a search warrant on former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate. A federal judge has asked the Justice Department to propose redactions after indicating the entire document is unlikely to stay sealed. For all of us at Fox News Radio, thank you for listening. I'm Jared Halpern from Washington. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts.